This is Michael Easley in Context. Here's a peek at what Michael will be talking about today. How does a person be successful? And I realized that success is, you know, our kind of success is sort of antithetical to society's view. And I try to, to say, especially to young people, that it really isn't about success. I never, st- I never set out to be a success in the eyes of the world. The point isn't success. The point is obedience. For more information, go to michaelincontext.com. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. We are privileged to be talking to Jerry B. Jenkins. By the way, what's the B stand for? Stands for Bruce. It's my one of my mother's brothers. So he was my uh, uncle and uh, great raconteur of the family. Jerry also a family name? No, but it's it's unusual in that in that it's my full name. I mean, a lot of people assume it's Jerome or Gerald, but it's just Jerry on the birth certificate. Yeah. My wife has the same problem. It's Cindy, not Cynthia. She gets very hmm. irritated if you say that. <laughs> <laughs> so Jerry Bruce Jenkins, yeah. one hundred and eighty one books. To your credit, uh, you wrote them one page at a time, I presume. Yeah, my kids uh, tease me that I've written more books than I've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> well, with your deadlines, I suspect there's some truth in that. Well, if I'm not writing, I'm reading. I yeah. mean, anybody that writes needs to be a reader. And we'll talk more about that now. Your series, Left Behind, of course, is what uh, if if people know the name Jerry Jenkins, they're going to associate it probably with the Left Behind series, and that series now is in what 70 million copies and counting yeah it, that that's most of my total sales i mean of, of all the books i've written that's probably 90 percent of my sales right there you told me at one time that any one book i left behind would outsell pretty much everything else it's true yeah in fact uh i was looking at a, a publishing company's uh, annual sales this was a company that sold i think 120 new books a year and a big big backlist too and uh, and I realized that one title of Left Behind had outsold their entire thing for the whole year, and it was it's humbling, really. I mean, it, you know, you can start feeling pretty good about yourself until you realize that that's a phenomenon that has to be a God thing, and uh, you, you can't be too proud of yourself at that point. Jerry's writing has appeared in Time Magazine, Reader's Digest, Parade, Guidepost, dozens of periodicals. Twenty of your books have reached the New York Times bestseller list. Seven debuting as number one, The Breakthrough, the final book in Jerry's Precinct 11 trilogy from Tyndale House. Came out in September 2012. We're going to talk about your newest book, I Saw, in a little bit. Um, you, you're asked this question, and I've asked you this question many times. Uh, some writers are creative, and they sit down as the spirit moves, and they write like a banshee, and they stop. But Jerry doesn't write that way. No, I'm I'm more of a, a business-like writer. Um, to me, I, I treat it as a job. A lot of times people say, what do you do when you have writer's block? And I say, you know, I just think that that's a myth. I mean, I know what it is, and I'm sympathetic to writers who say that, you know, some days you just don't feel like, like producing. But that's true of any job. Um, but no other job seems to get, to get this privilege of saying, I have block. I mean, if a if a pastor or an executive or a factory worker called in and said, I have worker's block, <laughs> they don't get to not come to work, they'd probably be told to just stay home forever, you know. So when I get up in the morning and say, I just don't feel like writing, um, I just plant my rear end at, in front of the computer and do something else. I mean, I research or I take care of my, you know, basic logistics of email and correspondence and, and uh, or I take a walk, uh, do something. 
because uh, I don't have time to not do anything. And uh, so, you know, I, I have a little sign that says the only way to write a book is with seat and chair. And so I put my seat in the chair every day and get to work. When you help folks with your writer's guild that you also have, is that the common message? I mean, everybody says, I'm going to write a book one day. Yeah, and so often you hear people say things like, uh, you know, I have a book in me if I just had the time, as if that's the only thing holding them back. They'd be like me saying, I have a sermon in me if I just had time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, it's something you're called to and something you're gifted for. And I'm not gifted in the pulpit, so I don't try to do that. People who tell me they have a book in them if they just had the time are saying to me, you know, they could do what I do if if, it, if they simply had the time. And the, in the guild, we're trying to say, look, there's a lot more to it. It's not just a hobby. It's not you can't be a dilettante at this. It's uh, a discipline. It needs to be a skill that's honed and polished, and there's a lot to it. So, you know, there's an awful lot that goes into it. Let's talk a little bit about your writer's guild. You have had a heart to help other people, obviously. Anyone who's successful in writing, you have uh, groupies, for lack of a better term. They said, Jerry, how do you, help, me, help me do this. What, what is the guild about? Well, I bought the guild probably 12, 13 years ago from a man named Norm Rohr, who had started it back in the 1960s. And he used to have those little ads in Christian pa- newspapers and magazines that said, I fire writers. Yes, or, I remember had, those. <laughs> yeah, and he had another one that was looked like a uh, post-it note, and it said, Hun, look, and it had a little arrow, and it was uh, pointed to that ad that said, I fire writers. And, <laughs> and he was teaching writers uh, through a correspondence course, and uh, he wrote the course, and then people would, would fill out a, a lesson and send it to him, and he would grade their writing and, and help them along. And he was very pastoral about this. Uh, he, he stayed in our home one time. We were on a board of a... Um, Evangelical Press Association for a while, and I watched him work, and he would uh, use a typewriter and use the U.S. Postal Service, and um, he had several hundred students. Wow. And I thought, that's an interesting way to teach, and I can't get to all the writers' conferences I'd like to, and I was a busy writer and, and young at the time, and I told him, I'd love to do that someday, if you ever need help or you know a partner or whatever. And years later, when he got up in years and wanted to get out from under the business side, he, he said, if you're still interested, I'm, I'm looking to, to get out from under this. And Left Behind had hit, and I had some means, and I said, well, if you'd like to sell it, I'll buy it from you and keep you on as dean of instruction, and, uh, you know, let's take another run at this and, and do it a, maybe a little different way. And so we had great fun. I, I uh, rewrote, you know, we had the courses rewritten and we, we went to, via email instead of the postal service and I tried to reproduce Norm. Um, tried to get writing instructors that were not uh, just teachers but were also very pastoral and it's hard to do. It's hard to find people like that but we're basically trying to restock the pool of Christian writers. Um, we're all passing off the scene eventually and uh, we want to teach people how to do it right and, and not just write devotionally, inspirationally, gospel track type stuff, but to to compete with the secular market and to to um, you know have excellence and quality and and uh, get out there and and uh, you know we have we have the best message we know that but we don't always have the best technique and mm-hmm. and uh, ability so um, it's just like in in the in the film industry my son runs our film company and he says it's one thing to curse Hollywood that's easy it's another thing to light a candle in the darkness and compete with them in their own at their right. own level and have the same technology and scripts and actors. And so we want to do that on the writing side, too. That's our goal. Well, this is a good place to tell folks. Um, if you go to Christian Writers Guild, all one word, com, you can find out more about the program. What is it, six months, I think it is? 
Some are six, some are a little longer, uh-huh. and uh, but we have different courses for different ages and, and different um, disciplines, too. So again, ChristianWritersGuild.com, one word. Jerry, when you started writing uh, early on, what, what was the impetus? Did, did, as a kid, were you the one always writing stories and reading books over in the corner? I was one who, I loved to read. My mother taught me to read, actually, even before I started kindergarten, and uh, so I was the obnoxious one in elementary school that was reading. You know, the, the joke in our family was I was reading at the fourth grade level in, in first grade, but in college I was also reading at the fourth grade <laughs> level. But, um, but I read the sports pages. I was a sports nut. And uh, when I got in high school, I wanted to be a, a big league baseball player. I got hurt playing football, and uh, that kind of ended the, the dream for baseball, too. And I started sports writing to keep up with uh, the sports world. And I was actually writing uh, and making a little money on the side, writing sports uh, for a local paper before I was old enough to drive. So I, wow. I've been a I've been a professional writer now for fifty years. And uh, my parents had to drive me to the games and drive me to the newspaper office. But that's how, really how I got started. And uh, I wasn't very good when I started, but I kind of had a knack for it because I'd been reading for so long and reading the sports pages. And uh, I really just never looked back. I felt called to full-time Christian work soon after that. And I thought I'd have to give up the writing and become a pastor or a missionary or something. And somebody counseled me and said, you know, sometimes God equips you before he calls you. So don't don't turn your back on that writing. Maybe that's your your angle on fulfilling this call. And it proved to be that that proved to be the case. Well, your love of sports shows up in some of the books you've written as well. Uh, Hank Aaron biography had to be a highlight. That was the the big break for me. I was uh, early twenties when I got to, to write Hank one of Hank Aaron's uh, biographies, and it was really fun. and And I was just about speechless because I was such a fan. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it was it was amazing experience. And uh, but it opened so many doors for other books like that, and and lots of Christian athletes. And uh, so it's yeah, I've probably done twenty of those. Uh, big name athletes that uh, have become, in fact, I used to kid people and say, you know, so many of the guys I've written about have gone on to become uh, Hall of Famers. I think that I'm the key. <laughs> <laughs> You're the X Factor. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> Bill Gaither, Oral Hershiser, Louis, Luis Palau, Joe Gibbs, Walter Payton, Nolan Ryan. Nolan's interesting cat. Yeah, he really is. Uh, uh, one of the things that was really interesting about him, I was watching him warm up in the bullpen and uh, I couldn't believe a human being could generate that kind of speed. I, I had bought a batting or a pitching machine for my son when he was in high school. He was quite a hitter. And that thing could crank up to 100 miles an hour. And I saw how it would shake and vibrate. And uh-huh. here's this human being doing the same thing. And and he asked me if I wanted to stand in and give him, you know, perspective. And I, I said, I would, but I only brought one pair of pants, you know. <laughs> and uh, the catcher said, yeah, like we would allow a civilian to stand in against a guy. That exactly. Throw, you know, their insurance would be through the roof. But uh, but I saw him pitch also in, in one of these family games they did before, one of the big league games where the kids and the wives would, would play against the big leaguers. And his wife just stood in there against him. And, you know, you assume a guy would slow it down, let her hit the ball. He was firing 90 miles really? more fastball. And you know what? She grounded a ball right back to him. Wow. And uh, and then you think maybe he'd toss it over the first baseman's head. No, he fired it down there and got her out. <laughs> <laughs> no no mercy, no quarter. No, nope. these guys are competitors from day one, aren't they? From moving from athletes, uh, perhaps another highlight, spending over a year with Billy Graham. That was the privilege of a lifetime, uh, to assist him with his memoir. I mean, he, he's the same guy behind closed doors as he is in public, and uh, 
you know, just the, the humility. I think his his major characteristic is the humility of Christ. And, uh, you know, for all the power in that preaching in his prime and, and the way he was clearly gifted and anointed, what really attracts people to him is the, is the very humility he exudes. And I saw him with people, you know, he would be the same with a busboy or a waitress as he would be with a head of state. And... Uh, truly inspiring person, and and, uh, I still remember most of those details to this day. Let's jump forward in time. You have uh, just released a book, I Saw. You and I have talked a lot about that book. That's that's been an interesting labor for you. To do a book about um, the Apostle Paul uh, from the time he was more known as Saul, you know, when when you've had success like I've had and, and had some New York Times bestsellers and made some lists and that type of thing, you can start feeling good about yourself as a writer until you're writing about a writer whose writing has lasted over 2,000 years. I mean, <laughs> that that quickly puts you in your place. And then one of the things I've done, because I'm not a theologian or a scholar, I've always made it a point to, to be careful not to let the Scripture become academic when I'm writing about it and, and trying to write fiction surrounding it. When you're writing about things that were written by the Apostle Paul, they're so majestic that I found them to be devotional, even while I was writing fiction to flesh out those stories that just lift you out of your seat every day. Um, I found them just uh, just thrilling. It, it's been great. And I'm, I'm working on the, uh, the sequel, I, Paul, now, and uh, finding the same experience. You have your critics, just like uh, pastors have their critics. Um, there are there are those that uh, don't like Christian fiction, quote unquote. Don't don't even use those two words together. How do you respond to that? I always point back to the the greatest example of all, and I, I believe Jesus was a, a fiction teller, not not a writer necessarily, but uh, his parables were clearly fictitious stories. Um, but he was telling truth with a capital T, so that's a great example. If I can can write fiction that tells the truth, that's that's crucial. Now, one thing that I have to be very careful of, especially when writing fiction uh, about biblical characters, I'm very careful about the, the scripture that talks about adding to or taking away from, mm-hmm. from the gospel. Now, to me, that means I'm not to write anything that would violate scripture or that would change what the gospel means. So I'm not going to write a scene that would um, not make sense based on what the Bible says. But when Scripture hints at a story, there you know there's a two or three verse passage that mentions that um, Paul's nephew overheard a plot to have him killed, right. and it's taken to the authorities, and and the the plot is thwarted. Now that's two or three verses. It doesn't even name the nephew, but to an to a novelist, that's two or three chapters. I mean, I can't wait to get to that one because I want to know who the nephew was. We know that Paul had a sister. And so in, in my story, I give her a name. I talk about how he, he and she interacted as they were growing up. But at the time this happens, Paul has become a believer. And so he's turned his back on his family, on his, on his faith from growing up. You'd think that the family would be terribly estranged from him. Where would the nephew have been to overhear a plot? Would he be a zealot on the other side? Would he be still loyal to Paul for some reason? And why? So I'm going to have fun fleshing out that story. Now, clearly it's fictitious because we don't know. We don't know the name. We don't know where the kid would be, how old he would be, why he would do this. But I'll have fun with it. And to flesh out Scripture, uh, to me, is interesting, and, and it's uh, it's fun, and, and it adds to um, the enjoyment of it. You and I have critics. You and I have fans. And I often say on the bell curve, you have those that think you're, 
you know the best and you ignore their comments and you have those on the far side of the bell curve that think you're evil and you ignore those comments uh, but you also have a fan base and uh, maybe some of them are are, are good critics some of them are unfair critics and they write you incessantly and with technology they can get a hold of you how do you process that data well it's it's tough i i find that uh my best critics are people that really love me and will tell me the truth um i think some of my best critics are my own uh family oftentimes criticism hurts the first few days i i, I make it a practice not to respond immediately usually even after a few days, if I if I find myself reacting defensively, I kind of vent, get it out of my system, and then a week later, I find I'm doing what they've suggested that I do. I come around, and uh, that's always valuable. One of the things I've done, too, and people find this hard to believe, I made a commitment to myself years ago because I was so taken with a, a couple of my idols in the writing business. There were guys that were doing what I wanted to do when I was uh, a late teen, they were writing these uh, as-told-to biographies of sports heroes and, and writing fiction. And I would write to them and compliment them, and uh, they would write back. And I thought, if I, if I ever get there, I'm going to answer every letter I get. If somebody calls me, writes me, and at that time I didn't know anything about email. There was no such thing. But I decided I would I would personally do, do that and not hire somebody or have people to do that or send form letters. Well, I didn't realize I was going to write you know something that would <laughs> hit like Left Behind did. So I've probably answered, and, I, and I've maintained that now, so I've answered every personal uh, message that I've ever gotten. I'm probably talking over 100,000 messages now. Wow. Now, some of them are a line or two, and I won't say that I haven't used some pasted paragraphs now and then, because some people ask the same thing. How did you get started, or what inspires you, or what, you know, uh, certain questions about writing. But I always do a personal greeting and a, and a something, you know, about them, or uh, something that's that's really for me. And people always say, I, I don't suppose you'll really see this yourself or right. whatever. And, and I often will say, <clears throat> believe it or not, this really is me and I'm answering you. And <laughs> that's one way I, I answer people. And I do answer the critics. And if they're really vitriolic, I take a lesson from Billy Graham, which was something I really learned uh, from him that, that was special. Um, you talk about somebody who has critics. Sure. Um, when he started out, he was criticized so vehemently for, for being too ecumenical. And people would say, you're sending people to hell and you're, you know, you've got people on your platform that aren't, you know, of our stripe, et cetera, et cetera. And he was so wounded by that and, and he had such great motives that he tried to defend himself. And he said, you can't win. You try to defend yourself and they keep coming back. So he finally said that what he does, especially the more vitriolic the, the criticism, he responds by saying, thank you for caring enough to be so forthright with me. Mm-hmm. I trust I can count on you to continue to pray for me. And that's it. Signed his name. And sometimes they write back and say, don't you realize what I said to you? <laughs> <laughs> but I've, I've done that on some where they just, you know, you, you know you're never going to convince them anyway. And, it, and the scripture is true that a soft answer turns away mm-hmm. wrath. Most of the time, people will write back and say, I really was overbearing and I need you to forgive me for mm-hmm. how I came at you. You know, so it, it's interesting. And it's interesting. I remember a, a caller when I lived in the Dallas area, and he would often call the Christian radio uh, uh, program, and he was pretty over the top. And and they just loved this guy and loved this guy and loved this guy. And every time I go, why do they take his call? Why do they take his mm-hmm. call? And uh, later I found out about his condition. I actually met the man. And, uh, boy, did it change my perspective. You know, mm-hmm. these, these are human beings, and they've got stories, and a lot of them are hurt. A lot of them have been uh, betrayed by the church, 
and uh, they take it out on people like you or the local pastor. So that's a good lesson. Jerry, when you look down the next 10, 15, 20 years, uh, of course, you and Dinah will live probably you know, to be 100. <laughs> but as you look down, and, and you and I have this the, this conversation, you know, the, the water going out and coming in have changed. And uh, you're looking at grandkids, and you're mm-hmm. loving this season of life. Um, what's the legacy? I want to finish well. Um, and I see people that are finishing well, and I see people that are not finishing well. I don't want to become a curmudgeon. I see things that, I, that don't make me happy. I see trends that are, you know... I see myself getting old and becoming critical, and I don't want to do that. So um, I try to, to to watch for people that are finishing well and and, uh, and make them examples uh, to me. Um, I want my legacy to be, and I mean, Diana says she's going to put on my tombstone, never an unpublished thought. <laughs> but I, I really want, to, if I'm to be remembered, I'd really love to be remembered as a good husband and father and grandfather that that really means a lot to me so um i'm going for uh i'm going for best grandpa <laughs> <laughs> how many grandkids do you have now we have eight and the last three are adopted which makes me so proud i can hardly talk about it um you know my my generation sent checks and and uh the next generation they take these kids in and they they mean it you know so it's been great fun to to see that happen and uh we love grandparenting and helping out when you know, we were just in Kansas City because my one son is a sports information director and had to travel with one of the ball teams. And and uh, so we were with our daughter-in-law and their four kids under age seven. And, um, boy, we, we remember, or we hadn't remembered, actually, what kind of energy it takes <laughs> to watch kids. <laughs> Manage all those movie parts. It, it's a good thing that we were young when we had kids, but uh, but it's fun. Jerry, when you look back on all that God has uh, done, you obviously have had uh, enormous success from the world standpoint. You've got a great bride. She is no doubt uh, your treasure. You've got great sons and grandchildren. Um, what do you tell a person that uh, maybe they don't know who this God is, they don't know who this Jesus is, maybe they they look at you and me as these uh, successful white guys, uh, Maybe they just don't like what they see. Hmm. What do you tell them about your God? You know, one of the things that uh, I try to tell people, because so often what people uh, say indicates that they are either suspicious or resentful or maybe jealous, and they talk about success, and they they wonder, you know, um, what's important to you or what, you know, how do you emulate that? How does a person be successful? And I realize that success is, you know, our kind of success success is sort of antithetical to society's view. And I try to to say, especially to young people, that it really isn't about success. I never st- I never set out to be a success in the eyes of the world. The point isn't success. The point is obedience. And uh, I want to be obedient. I feel like I've been called to do something, and whether it turns into material success or or popularity or visibility is irrelevant. Now, some of the, sometimes that can be nice and it can be gratifying, but if it even if it didn't, if I was obedient, I would feel like I was a success. But the point is, in the end, and I've heard you say this, you know, we're really nothing but dirty, rotten sinners saved by grace. And it doesn't make any difference whether we're successful or not. Um, we all start and end in the same place. And whatever we are, we are because Christ died on the cross for our sins and and forgave us and when we and we were 
saved when we were yet dead in our sins. I mean, that's that's the end all. That's it. That's why we're here. That's why we do what we do. Jerry B. Jenkins, author, board chairman, owner of the Christian Writers Guild Publishing, uh, continuing to write great works. Thanks for your time, my friend. Love you. Appreciate you. And uh, just delighted you come on the program. Thanks, Michael. Always great to be with you. To find out more about Jerry Jenkins, jerry-jenkins.com, jerry-jenkins.com. That's his website. Or the ChristianWritersGuild.com, where you can find out about courses where mentors will actually help you in your writing skills. You can submit manuscripts to them back and forth, and they will teach you how to improve your writing if your goal, your dream, your hope is to be a published author someday. Thanks for listening to Michael Easley in Contact.